We're in Matthew 26. And bear with me, this is very long. This is a lot of my voice. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priest and elders of the people assembled in the, the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly to, and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, My appointed time is near, and I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with one of the twelve, or with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you on my father's, in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks to Lindsay and Phoebe and Mark and everybody else who's uh, praying and uh, helping us lead this morning. Uh, we are starting a new series called King's Cross. Uh, in the spirit of Lent, we're looking at the final days of our Lord Jesus Christ, his trials, his death, his resurrection, and then appearing to his disciples. And so we will close out the book of Matthew over the next five weeks and land on the resurrection passage on Easter Sunday. And so you'll see in your bulletins, there's some Easter handouts. You can take those with you. We've got more in the back if you want to use that to invite a friend to Easter over the next couple weeks. That's a great opportunity to do that. This morning, though, we are looking at the Last Supper, which sort of kicks off the series of events leading to Jesus's death. And the Last Supper is the most famous meal in human history. It's the most important and meaningful meal in human history. And it got me thinking, and you can think of this on your own, what is the most incredible, most amazing, most important meal you've ever eaten? I was thinking about it, and when we lived back in Louisville, Jesse and I had a favorite restaurant called Mojitos, and it was a Cuban restaurant, and so we would have 
uh, guacamole, fish tacos, and of course mojitos, and it was so good I could almost cry just thinking about it and how far away it is right now. When I was uh, just a few days before Jesse and I got married, uh, my dad and I and about 12 friends, we went to Kansas City and had barbecue. Uh, I grew up in Kansas City, so I'm a big barbecue guy, and so I knew that's where I wanted my bachelor party meal to be. And so we sat eating ribs and smoked brisket and pulled pork, and we had boulevards and good conversation, family and friends all in this space together. It was one of the most memorable meals I've ever had. And then last year, I was in Kansas City again with some of my friends. I was part of a, a cohort of young pastors who are all starting churches in different parts of the country, and we were invited to the Majestic in Kansas City, if you know it, it's a steakhouse, dry aged steaks, Japanese Wagyu, all the appetizers, all the sides, all the drinks you could imagine. And so we had this spread. There were eight of us young pastors there who can't afford to eat at McDonald's, and yet a benefactor had provided this entire meal for us. So it was like $200 a person. So, so good. And these meals, the, the ones that really matter, they stick in our minds and they stick in our hearts, not just because of the food. Uh, and I'm sorry if I've made you hungry already. Not just because of the, the sustenance, the nutrients that they bring to our body, but meals are meaningful. They're full of meaning. They, they represent relationship. They represent fellowship and friendship. They represent significance. They represent life itself. And our meals are so much more than just meals, especially the ones that, that kind of make time stop for a moment. And the meal that we're looking at, this greatest meal that was ever shared, it's just moments before the greatest tragedy in human history. And yet it's this meal that's, that's the sign, this, this last supper of Jesus with his disciples that shows us something about his, his coming death, that the death isn't the final word, the tragedy isn't the end of the story. And so in a way, what we'll see by the end of this, this is the spoiler alert, but the Last Supper is in a very true sense the First Supper. It's a new beginning. It's the First Supper of, of millions of suppers that God's people will have in His presence for all eternity. And so what we're going to look at, what does the Last Supper mean? It means three things. It means Passover, it means love, and it means invitation. So Passover, love, and invitation, and that'll make sense as we go. Looking back at your bulletin, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. And so our scene, our supper, takes place just moments before Passover. This traditional Passover meal was the most important meal for the Israelite people. They had been celebrating it for 2,000 years. And what Jesus has been doing throughout the, the last few weeks that we've been looking at in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been, has been preparing his disciples for his death. All of his teaching, all of his training, all of his miracles, he's pointing them towards the cross over and over. He's, he's done doing his miracles at this point. He's, he's been focused on Jerusalem where he knows he'll be arrested, put on trial, crucified, and buried. And yet it seems like all of this is just completely in his control. 
He's telling the disciples exactly what's going to happen as if the religious leaders and the people of Jerusalem are like pawns in his hand because he knows this was the plan that he's made with his father from the beginning of time. And so verse 17, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples come to Jesus and ask, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city and tell a certain man, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passovers with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did just as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. Now this word Passover is extremely important to this passage, and it's incredibly profound for our understanding of what God has done in our lives as well. All the way back in Exodus 12, 2,000 years earlier, the Passover event was the beginning of the Exodus, God's freedom, freeing of his people from slavery in Egypt. And so if you remember from uh, the Old Testament or if you've heard the Bible stories growing up, God had brought nine plagues on Egypt and on their king, Pharaoh, as a way of setting free the Israelites from their harsh slavery in that land. But even after nine plagues, Pharaoh still wouldn't let the people go. And so the 10th plague is, is the, most, the most severe. It's the harshest. It's the death of every firstborn male boy in the entire country. And the only way that Israel can get out from underneath this plague themselves is by, by doing this, this ceremony. And so as they go back to their homes, they take every single household, takes a firstborn male lamb, spotless with no blemishes, a perfect lamb, and they kill it put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and then eat the lamb in this incredible feast. And so on that night, as the angel of the Lord sweeps through Egypt to kill every firstborn boy, when the angel of the Lord saw the blood on the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites, he would pass over that home and spare the life of that household. And so in the night, as the angel of the Lord came through and Egypt mourned the loss of their firstborn sons, Moses led Israel out of slavery through the wilderness and eventually through the Red Sea and to the promised land. And so for thousands of years, the Israelites, and to this day, Jews still celebrate this great ceremony, this meal, the Passover, is one of the highlights of the Jewish calendar. And it's a meal that is meaningful. It's full of substance. It's full of life. It's full of friendship and fellowship. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus has gathered his disciples in the time of Passover to teach them something about what his death means and to show them the parallels between the Old Testament Passover and this New Testament Supper, this Last Supper and what will come after it. And so the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper, as we practice it afterwards, it is the new Passover. It's the meal that replaces the Old Testament celebration of Passover. So think about it, just as the Passover meal preceded the Exodus event, which was salvation through the waters, now the Lord's Supper precedes the cross event, which is salvation through the blood. And just as a spotless, perfect, firstborn male lamb was sacrificed to save all who belong to Israel, so now our spotless, perfect, first among all creation lamb of God was sacrificed to save all who belong to him. And just as Pharaoh was hardened in his heart and wouldn't let the people go, but sought to kill God's chosen people, now a new enemy arises, Judas. And in the hardness of his heart, he elects to, cho to kill God's chosen one. 
as the meal is being prepared, it says in, in verse 14 to 16, one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, it's important to realize that Judas was not always seen as a traitor. His name is synonymous with a betrayer and a traitor now. But at the time, he was just one of the disciples. He was one of the 12 men that, that Jesus chose, handpicked, to spend his life in ministry with. This is someone who seemed, by all accounts, to be incredibly spiritually mature. They even put him in charge of the ministry funds because he was so trustworthy. Everybody looked to him as such a strong representative of the group that he had extra responsibilities among the disciples. And so when Jesus announces at this meal that somebody from their own number, from the 12, is going to betray him, it's not like they all look back and, and Judas is standing by the exit with an e-cigarette and he's got two gold watches on one wrist. And they're like, well, obviously it's Judas. Nobody thinks that. They think all the responses are actually the right response. They all say, is it me, Lord? Surely it couldn't be me. They all collectively have a, have a softness of heart to recognize that any one of us could betray our Lord. Any one of us, when the pressure is on, could leave in a moment of great need. There's a great book called The Cross of Christ, uh, written by an Anglican scholar, John Stott. It's one of the books I'll be referring to throughout this series, but he makes a great point about who's responsible for Jesus' death. Because we have Judas, who is one of Jesus' own disciples, who betrayed him. We have the religious leaders of Israel who put Jesus on trial and committed him to death. We have the people, the Israelites, who had the opportunity to let Jesus go free, but instead they chose the killer, Barabbas, to go free instead. You have the Romans who could have prevented this crucifixion as well, and they choose, like everyone else, to wash their hands of it. And then lastly, we have Peter, James, John, all of the disciples, who in the moment when Jesus is ready to be crucified, they all flee. They all say that they don't know him, and they disassociate from our Lord. And the point of all this is to show us that we would have done the exact same thing if we were there. There's not a single person who's standing up with Jesus saying, you are my Lord, crucify me right next to you. Nobody is doing that. Jesus dies completely and utterly alone. And what that means for us today is that we would have done the same thing. We are all responsible for the cross. We are all Judas. In this way, Judas serves as a, as a representative of all of the pride and self-sufficiency and greed and, and love of the world that can exist in our hearts. And we know that if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, as, as they didn't because the, the Spirit was given after Jesus' resurrection, that we are capable of everything that Judas did, everything that the Israelites and Romans did as well. And what this shows us is how much we need this Passover, how much we need a permanent Passover. We need a substitute, a once-for-all sacrifice to set us free from our spiritual bondage and lead us into the promised land of eternal life. And so it's why the Passover in the Old Testament, this is just an aside, but there were no vegetarian meals in the Old Testament. Every Passover meal, every significant meal was always full of meat. And it was this, this symbol that for a great feast to exist, something had to die. An animal had to shed blood. So it's okay if you're a vegetarian, but that's a theological defense for barbecue and steaks. If you need one, there it is. Hallelujah. 
But it's this great sacrifice that leads us to the second meaning of the Last Supper, which is love. And so the Last Supper, it means Passover, but it also means love. And the Passover is the redemptive sense that that God ushers us into this new salvation, but on a personal level, it represents his love for us. And we've been looking at Matthew for the last three, four months, but in the Gospel of John, the, the Apostle John actually devotes five entire chapters to this one event, just to the Last Supper and the teaching that Jesus had there. And it begins, John 13, verse 1, It says, Jesus knew the hour that had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's a great phrase. Having loved his people who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them through the Last Supper. He loved them all the way to Gethsemane. He loved them all the way to his trials, to his beatings, to his crucifixion. He loved them all the way to the grave and back again. This past weekend in our community group, we were talking about how do we cultivate a, a feeling, an experience of God's love. Because we often know that God loves us intellectually, but how do we actually get that into our hearts? How do, we, how do we feel deep within our being that God loves us? How do we make the connection between the mind and the heart? You know, the first thing that the Bible is always teaching us is that we do begin with the heart. And it's, and it's this moment, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that we're looking at the next few weeks that always comes up when God is showing us his love. And so 1 John 4 It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so in the same way that John wrote that, Paul writes in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so for us to, to press into the love that Christ has for us and the love that this, this moment, this supper represents, we have to understand that the pinnacle of God's love for us is the cross, is Christ's death and resurrection. And that's the point of this series over the next five weeks is to see that the cross, which is a way of just sort of encapsulating all that Jesus did in these final days, his trials, his crucifixion, his resurrection, that's all just considered by one image, the cross, that this cross is the central event of all of human history. And because it's the central event of all of human history, that means it's the central organizing principle for our lives. It's the one thing that grounds us and roots us and that all other things flow out of. And it is a little bit ironic because we've been looking at the subversive kingdom that Jesus brings. Over the last few weeks, that's been the theme. Jesus is the king that we truly need. His kingdom comes into this world and it confronts and subverts the kingdoms of this world. And yet we have this paradox, a king's cross, the cross representing the most cruel form of punishment imaginable, representing humiliation, nakedness, complete and utter death. And yet a king is supposed to win, and yet the way that he wins is through the cross. And so as we think about how does God love us and how do we know that we can feel that, we have to begin with the truths and we begin with the truth of the cross. 
that when we look upon Jesus' cross, we see Christ in all of his glory. This is the fulfillment of his subversive kingdom. Christ is humble, yet glorified, gentle, yet unshakable, faithful, yet unpredictable, human, yet divine, dying, and at the same time, conquering. And the way that I think we get that into our hearts, from our, our minds to our hearts, is through seeing, is through, through looking at what Christ has done for us. Often our, our emotions can let us down. We're not too aware of what's going on inside of us if, if you don't have good grasp on your feelings like I don't. Or maybe if you do understand your feelings, but they can often be misleading for us as human beings. But we often have really good eyesight, spiritual eyesight. We can see what God has done for us and we can recognize that those are, those are evidences of his love for us. And so if you're struggling to feel God's love, can you, can you see it? Can you see God's love for you in the scriptures and can you see it in your own life? And so in the scriptures, if we go back to John 13, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now you can imagine this moment, this Passover meal where you have gathered with some of your closest friends and you're with Jesus and you've been, been given this great room to celebrate and a great feast is about to begin. You don't have any, any servants with you, nobody who's a low enough position in society that they'll come and wash your feet. So you're just going to let your feet stink. I mean, feet have always been gross. They were even grosser 2,000 years ago when people were walking through the streets and all they only had chacos or whatever. And yet all of a sudden, Jesus gets up from the table, takes his jacket off, grabs a towel, warm water, and one by one, he goes around to everyone in the room and washes their feet. It's a profound display of, of his love. And when we look at the scriptures, we see these profound displays of God's love for us over and over and over again. But what about your own life? How do you look at your, your own life and, and the day-to-day -day things that happen and, and the way that you look back on your life over your time as a Christian, your time on this earth? How do you see God's love for you over and over and over again? In my life, I tend to focus way too much on the negative things or on the circumstances that are hard. I can get so hung up on the things that haven't gone my way and get frustrated about those that I don't even see all the millions of things that do go my way. And I'm trying to learn to, to retrain my brain to recognize those good things just as much, if not way more, than the things that are hard. I don't know if you experience that, but the things that are difficult, that don't go, that, don't go our way, they stick out so much more but how can we see the things that do go our way? See God's blessings to us spiritually, relationally, not just stuff that's given to us or circumstances that go right, but seeing his presence in our circumstances and to see those things and say, that's God's love for me. How can I see that? And even if I don't feel it immediately, how can I know that that's a display of his love for me and pray that he might impress that upon my heart? And so throughout this series, that's, a, that's the prayer, that we would know, that we would see, that we would feel the love of the King. And that's, that's what leads us to the third point, the invitation. The Last Supper means an invitation to 
to an eternal feast. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body. Take and eat. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, as a church, it's important for us that we recognize this supper. We recognize the Lord's Supper each and every week when we gather. And I think that's important, not just because the Apostle Paul says explicitly to do it in 1 Corinthians, like that would be enough that he says to do it every week. But for us, we need that reminder every week. We need the reminder that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. And so the church has always treated the Lord's Supper with a sort of somber reflection. And that question that the disciples asked, is it, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Have, have I been the one that's, that's led you to the cross? That's the appropriate question to ask before we take communion to recognize our, our own fault, our own sin, our own responsibility in putting the Lord on the cross. We also ask that only Christians come forward. Every week I, I say that, or most weeks I say that. And the reason for it is that this meal represents and even enacts this incredible participation that we have in Christ. It represents the oneness that we have in Christ through our belief in him that we actually mysteriously become one with Christ in salvation so that his broken body counts towards us, counts towards our salvation. His shed blood means that we don't have to shed our blood to be righteous before God. And so for those who aren't Christians, we ask them not to come forward and take communion because we want them to take what communion points to. We want them to take Christ in fullness. But it's not just somber reflection that we're looking for. The New Testament also describes the Lord's Supper as a meal of joy and gratitude. And there's always a hard thing for us to balance as a church. There's times when I want to feel really somber, and I think that's really appropriate. And there's other times where you can come bounding forward and take the bread and take the wine, fully understanding what, what God has done for you to, to show you his love, to, to send his son into the world to save you. This is the best news ever, and to take communion is to participate every single week in what Christ has done to set us free. And then lastly, we don't ever take communion alone. The Lord's Supper is a meal for the church, and local churches take it together as a sort of family meal, as a sort of recognition that we are one together, that in Christ we are bound together as a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And all the most memorable meals are, are with those that we love. They represent friendship and fellowship. And then lastly, as I said before, the Last Supper, this disciple meal that they have together, it's actually a first supper. It's the first of many, the first of millions of eternal feasts that Christ is inviting us into. The Last Supper is an invitation to a never-ending feast in eternity. And so with the last few minutes, I want you to, to put yourself in this situation. You can close your eyes or you can just, just listen. But as much as you can, use your imagination to put yourself in the upper room with the disciples. Picture yourself at the end of a, a long day's journey. You've finally gotten a time to rest. Your feet have been washed 
you're with your closest friends, you're, you're with Jesus, you've been walking with him for years now, you know him, he knows you, he has completely accepted you, completely changed your life. Your whole life you have longed for, for something more, something more than just, just work and, and family drama and sickness and death. And from the first moment you, you laid eyes on Jesus, you knew there was something different about him. He called you by name. And even though you had to leave everything else behind, it was completely worth it. The greatest decision you ever made was leaving everything to follow this man. And now you're having the time of your life. You're relaxed, you're full, satisfied, leaned back with your friends. It's a closed party, there's lots of great wine. It's all red wine, only Judas picked the white. But as you're sitting together with your closest friends, Jesus begins to, to take a glass of wine. And so you sit up and you know that Jesus knows his way around a blessing. And he begins to speak. He says, this is my body. Take and eat. And something seems off because Jesus is normally lighthearted, but here there's a, there's a heaviness to the moment and there's a somberness, a weight that's on Jesus. He's sweating and there are tears in his eyes. And as you recognize the intensity in the room, you sit up. And he says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Once again, Jesus seems to be talking about his death. And he says, I won't drink with you again until we are all in my Father's kingdom. And so this king that you've been following, this king that loves you, he is now going to love you to the very end. It's all beginning to, to become clear. Jesus is speaking of his death over and over. It hasn't been clear, but now it's starting to come together. The reason we're in Jerusalem, the reason we're eating now this meal, it means so much more. For you to taste life, he must taste death. For you to see the light, he must plunge into utter darkness. For you to meet the Father, he must be forsaken by the Father in that moment. And yet he's not angry with you. He's not disappointed. He's not looking forward to a better version of you. He's not upset about going to the cross for you, but this was the plan from the beginning. You have been saved by the blood of another. Death has passed over you, and you are free. You are known, you are loved by Jesus from your dirty feet to the top of your head. You are loved. And now you have a seat at the table the whole story of God, the whole story of the world has led to this moment. Jesus inviting you into his father's house, pulling out the chair and giving you a seat. And now the feast is on. And so as the evening drew to a close, Jesus prayed for his disciples. It's a prayer recorded in John 17. I want to close with this prayer and I want you to, to remember that just how encouraging, how comforting it is to know that Christ prays for us even now. Christ prays to the Father on our behalf. And these are his words, and then we'll take communion together. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may in turn glorify you. 
you have put me in charge of everything human so that I may give real and eternal life to all in my care. And this is real and eternal life, that they know you, the one and true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Everything mine is yours, and yours mine, and my life has been on display in them. I'm no longer going to be visible in the world. They will continue in the world while I return to you. Holy Father, guard them as they pursue this life that you gave as a gift through me so that they can be one heart and one mind, just as we are one heart and one mind. In the same way that you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. I have set myself apart for them so that they too will be truly set apart. Father, I want those you gave me to be with me right where I am so that they can see my glory, the splendor that you gave me, having loved me long before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, who you are and what you do, continue to make it known so that your love for me may be in them exactly as I am in them. Amen.